You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's Word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. All right, guys, we're going to jump in. Let me uh, let me pray for us. Uh, we're starting a little late because I know it's early and it's cold. Um, <laughs> And the Braves, Braves lost, so I know that was really hard for your, for all of your mornings. Uh, so, no, I'm just kidding. But let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Gracious God, thank you, Lord, for time we have to be together with brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you that, Lord, uh, you create minds that can write books that, Lord, can encourage us and challenge us and, Lord, be so tangible. But I do pray as we walk through our time this morning, it would be honoring to you, and, Lord, that it would be grace to us. Uh, and, Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be going through quickly. I'm going to cover the entire book uh, in about 30 minutes, which <laughs> is a joke, but not a joke. What I'm not going to do is cover the whole book, but what I am going to do is kind of give a quick summary of um, what it's about, how he came about, how he decided to write it, you know, the whole tangible summary piece. I'll walk through his eight habits, um, and then we'll, we'll discuss along the way. I did print out, I couldn't find the chart anywhere. There's one on each table. It's the blue chart. Um, Morgan, I think it's under Morgan's notes there if you want to look at it. When we get to the point, that'll be a helpful visual for you um, because I'll mention it. Uh, But in essence, um, this guy, Justin Early, was a missionary in China for a while with his family and then became a lawyer. And we'll kind of walk through his story. But I gave you some notes there. You can see a couple quotes that I threw out there to kind of get our attention, and maybe you can grab a hold of these. The first is, so I was way too busy, totally overcommitted, and living with a chaotic packed schedule, but I thought I was different because I had a calling. Um, And this guy's not a pastor, by the way. As I mentioned, he's a lawyer. He was a missionary, but we'll walk, as I said, through, through a story of, he's a lay member. He's an important lay member of a church that is not a pastor um, or, or any kind of staff minister but he knew he had a calling in his everyday job. Um, Second quote, he said, only in retrospect did I realize that while the house of my life was decorated with Christian content, the architecture of my habits was just like everyone else's, and life had been working for me until it collapsed. Last one, he says, busyness functions like an addiction. When you stop, you have to face your thoughts, which terrifies most of us. So before I kick into kind of his story, does this, does this, can you relate to these? Like, what, what are your thoughts? What, what does your mind think as, as soon as I throw out some of these, these quotes? I need you to get out of my business. <laughs> exactly. Get out of my business. Why you read, my- Why you read my diary? I don't even have one, but I feel oh, like you're reading God. it. Yeah. Just kidding. Yeah. I don't feel like I have enough to do so. <laughs> <laughs> Michael's non-chaotic and non-busy ever. What else? Can, can you relate? It's just kind of hitting the heartstrings. I was definitely raised to be like a worker mm. bee kind of person. That's mm. how my family is. We're all like heavily involved wherever we go. And it's hard for me to rest. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like when I read his other book, I was like, oh, I'm receiving this so deeply. And all of these things just ring so true. And I think that's why I love being married to Daniel because he's not a go, go, go person. <laughs> so it helps me to like, okay, yeah. maybe I don't need every second of my day filled with blah, blah, blah. Yep. Yep. So we can all probably relate in some capacity, maybe to all of those quotes, maybe to portions of them, but regardless, um, life gets a little overwhelming and chaotic. And so what, what he does, he tells his story. So him and his wife were missionaries in China. 
Um, they loved doing missions work. Uh, one day he had an experience in China where he saw four, three or four things happening, um, all of which were terrible things. And it was that moment where he felt like the Lord kind of nudged him and said, um, you're gifted. Uh, law and the gospel matters. So he moved his family back to the Richmond, Virginia area, and he went to law school um, so that he could be, uh, you know, an influential gospel-oriented person in the law system. So here he is living in Northern Virginia, um, beautiful family, wonderful wife, great job. You know, one of the, I mean, in fact, the Lord gave him a job at one of the most um, well-respected firms in the country, in the country, really, but at least in that area. And then one night it all came crashing down for no real apparent reason. It wasn't like something happened, major catastrophic in his life. He woke up in the middle of the night um, in, in, in angst and anxiety. He couldn't sleep. Um, in fact, the way he describes it um, was like, I'll just read it to you. Um, it was such an odd moment that I woke Lauren and tried to explain it to her, but there wasn't much to explain. It was like my heart had rung the alarm bells for no reason. Finally, after a while of trying to calm down, I fell back asleep. So this is what started it. The next day, he felt like something was wrong in his heart. He kept kind of doing life. And then he dreaded going to sleep the next night because he felt like it was going to start again, to which it did. He ended up in the emergency room. The doctor was like, apologetically, nothing's wrong. Panic attacks, anxiety, and the rest is kind of history. So he walks through his story very tangibly on how he went from being this missionary who had eventually been converted to this sleeping pill, medicated, out of control person. Like he just, he, he knew, he knew the gospel mentally. He knew the right theology. He went to a great church. He was doing all the right things. His family seemed to be intact, but he was totally out of order. His life was just, I mean, literally things seemed to be falling apart. He tells this story that one evening he was in the kitchen with his wife um, and this was after he started sleeping pills because that was one of the darkest times of his life, he said. Um, she asked him to put the dishes away and he looked at her and said, I don't, I don't even know where these go. Like his mind was so thin, so fragile, so distracted that he couldn't do the, the standard meaningless tasks or, or not meaningless, but you know, the, the normal tasks of everyday life. Uh, he says, my mind was getting so thin that simple tasks were becoming overwhelming. If I can't put away the dishes, I thought, how am I going to be the husband and friend and father that I want to be? I love this quote. He said, my conversion from the young missionary to the medicating lawyer was now complete. And a stubborn question appeared. How did a missionary come to be the one that is being converted? Mm -hmm. So he realized he was at this, this pivotal moment in his life. He was at a very low point. Um, he comments about how he begins to see his body finally being given over to the anxiety and the busyness and the schedule that he had been worshiping for his entire life. Um, you know, pushing hard, pushing hard, being busy. And he really kind of boils it down to the habits of his life. You know, what, what, what kind of habits are going on in his life? Uh, he says, the head said one thing, God loves him no matter what. This is important. Don't miss what he's about to say here. God loves him no matter what, but his habits said something entirely different. If I don't keep striving to prove myself and stay loved, I won't be, right? And sometimes if we take a step back for a minute and we look at our life, that's how we live. That's, that's how we, sometimes even subconsciously or unconsciously, we, we structure our lives in such a way where 
we live with this got to keep going I, if i don't answer the phone if i don't send that email you know how everything will fall apart you know as if as if we're that important anyways we are important but you, you know what i mean i think um he says in the end uh i started to believe my habits he said one thing he knew God loved him no matter no matter what, but his habits said in some something entirely different. So he began to believe that he began to pursue that, and his life began to fall apart. Um, so, pretty pretty bad situation. And it, you know, honestly, as I read this, I've never had this kind of experience, but I could see how easily I could find myself there um, very fast. Uh, in fact, it's funny just as a personal testimony. You know, Lord took my job away six weeks ago, and. I mean, it's allowed me time just to breathe for a minute, like just to do a little carpentry, you know, at my new house, just to watch my children while my 33-week pregnant wife takes the others to school, you know, and sit on the floor and play, like, play cars with my son at 10 in the morning. That never, ever, 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 ever happens, except for maybe a Saturday. And even then, we're generally prepping a house for a showing, which is not something I would wish on my worst enemy. Um, but, you know, all jokes aside, like the Lord knows these things, you know, and so I could easily see myself getting there. So w what I love about this is he then transitions and he says, all right, 15 months later, something major happens. And what major happened? He went to some Beth Moore conference and something amazing <laughs> happened or, you know, God wrote on the wall something, or, you know, no, no, he went to dinner with two buddies. And he laid out on a sheet, of a sheet of paper on the table that him and his wife had kind of scratched out new habits for his life. And he was asking his brothers to hold him accountable. And little did he know that unremarkable moment was going to do something so remarkable in his life. Um, he would have never have dreamed of it, period. Um, and so here's his two best friends. And the aim of this program that he wrote out, and this is kind of the start of how this book started, um, the, aim of the, the aim of the program, he says, was to try to get my heart to believe the peace that my head professed, mm -hmm. but that my body refused. That was the whole point. Mm -hmm. And his two friends were there just to keep him accountable. That's it. So um, no great revelation, no great victory. It was a long road, just a good night of conversation to, to talk about living with better rhythms, you know? And we can probably even recount in our lives, I mean, I want better rhythms. I wanna I want do better at these things. But sometimes it doesn't leave that that conversation. Well, he, he took it um, past that. So at this time, he had never heard of anything called a keystone habit. Does anybody know what a keystone habit is or have any idea what a keystone habit is? And Alyssa, you're not allowed to answer or Michael. Um, does anybody know what a keystone habit is? Rejected. I would imagine that it's like a formative daily thing that you do. Yeah. The main, I don't know. Something yeah. main, major, yeah. to do regularly. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's all you can do from those two words. No, that's great. He actually, <laughs> he pretty much hit it uh, on the head. He says it's a, it's a micro shift that has macro effects. That's a keystone mm -hmm. habit. A keystone habit generally is something that you, you may not even think about. It just happens on a regular basis that you have done for years and years and years, um, but has major impact on your life on a daily basis. And so... Um, he didn't think that a few habit shifts would do a whole lot, uh, but in fact, it changed his life. It literally changed his life. Um, so as of today, he says the habits not only changed his life, uh, but he works the same job. He works uh, in the same place. He lives in the same house. He has the same family. He does the same thing, you know, on a normal daily basis. But these few habit shifts completely changed him 
into a new man, into a humble man, into a stronger man, and he slept like a baby last night, he says. I don't know if, like, last like night, but he says <laughs> he slept like a baby. Yep, yep. Um, so here, here's the concept, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm being cognizant of time here. Um, he, he basically lays out this idea that habits in your life shape your heart. I mean, I'm just really summing it, summing it down here. The habits of your life are a part of how your heart is shaped. What you give your life to 40 to 60% of your day, most of the time without even thinking about it, and oftentimes chosen by others and not even necessarily by yourself, that is shaping your heart. And he began to realize this. Most of us don't even think about our habits. They're just the water that we swim in. Um, David Foster Wallace, um, he gave a graduation address. And here's what he said. In 2005, there are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What the heck is water? Um, and so his point is, in short, the most obvious, and I think I put this quote on your, on your sheet, uh, the most obvious important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. You just do them. Um, a habit he would define as a behavior that occurs automatically over and over and over again, often unconsciously. And some studies would actually prove that 40% of your daily habits you do without even thinking about them. Um, and so daily, daily habit products is what we are. And 40% of that just happens without you thinking, thinking about it. Um, so, he, he, I wish I could, I could have found another um, chart that, I, that would have been really helpful, but I'll read you um, some, some of these things in just a second. But he, he kind of plays out this comment of, or this idea of oftentimes, sometimes our habits and schedules are chosen by others, not ourselves. And so before I give you some ideas, when I ask you what habits in your life, if you, if you kind of step back for a minute, what habits in your life that you do on a daily basis um, are someone else? typically choosing for you. What, what are some of those habits? Your children. Okay. Like, like whatever needs and demands that you have. Absolutely. Children. What else? Wake up. So your work schedule, basically? Okay. Yeah. What else? <clears throat> Maybe one more. I think what time you go to bed can be dictated by someone else, too. Yeah. Not... Because I don't really want to be awake right now, or the interruptions in the middle of the night yeah. are not coming from me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, you guys touched on a couple. He lists out work schedule, social media scrolling. Um, if you didn't know it, there are hundreds of thousands of developers on the other ends of those apps that are developing things that cause addiction. Um, how you spend your mornings, whether it be your children or your work schedule or whatever you do, when you eat lunch. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, even something that simple when you eat lunch, like is dictated oftentimes by others, how much time you spend with friends and family. A lot of times that's dictated by other things, um, daily screen time. And he says these, these few important things. He says, these things define a vast majority of our lives, but we have likely not carefully chosen them. Um, so if you start thinking about some of these more mundane things, have you carefully chosen these things or have they been chosen for you or have you allowed them just to be chosen and you not even think about it. Mm -hmm. um, most often time, to use Wallace's illustration, we just swim along with the rest of the people in the world. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. You know, as long as we don't drink, smoke, cuss, and do, and hang out with those that do. That's mm -hmm. the old Baptist joke. Mm -hmm. um, 
we're fine. But we just keep doing what everybody else does. Um, and oftentimes we're nudged into these habits by those who want to make money off the pattern of our lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just the bottom line. Um, so we, we kind of start thinking about these habits. He lays it out. There's a lot more in the book, but he says this. This wouldn't be such a big deal if it weren't for the fact that these habits um, form much more than our schedule. Um, they form our hearts. And, and that's why I kind of gave you that initial statement. Habits are, are a huge formation of our hearts. Um, I love the section on science and theology. There's a ton there. Um, but he lays out habits as liturgies of worship. Um, I'll just define liturgy for, for you. Liturgy is a pattern of words or actions that you repeat regularly um, as a way of worship. And so an example of this would maybe be like with our kids, oftentimes we'll recite the Lord's Prayer. Why do we recite the Lord's Prayer over and over again? Because I want, and he says this in the book, I could really relate to it. I don't probably do it as much as he does. But he says we recite the Lord's Prayer with our children because we want that to be in their bones mm-hmm. so that it, in, in moments of hard time and good time and indifferent time, they come back to the Lord's Prayer and they remember who the Lord is. Like that's a liturgy. So um, he, he lays out this idea that habits are liturgy of worship. And the goal of the liturgy is for the participant to be formed in a certain way. It's not passive. It's formation. So habits are liturgies of worship. And then he mixes it in with this idea of neurological insight. And we won't go into all the details, um, but oftentimes our brains are not totally engaged when our habits are playing out, mm-hmm. as we've said, subconsciously or unconsciously. So this idea of liturgies of worship, this unconscious or subconscious movement of habits, um, here's a pretty robust explanation in his words of how our unconscious habits are forming us and shaping our hearts. So he lays out this whole underpinning and groundwork of mm-hmm. This unseen, untalked about, oftentimes unknown or, or unnoticed, and certainly not um, specifically chosen part of our life mm-hmm. is affecting everything. Um, and, and as you get to this point in his summer, you're like, man, I feel duped. You know, like, or man, like this is, I mean, he, he, and once again, I said this earlier, this is such a tangible book that you can relate to. Um, he makes it concrete. Uh, on pages 9 and 10. If you have the book, you can look at it. I'll just read a couple of these because the last one is really important. But basically, he lays out this table. He gives the habit on the left side, and then he gives the liturgy or the wrong belief on the right side. So here's the first one. He says, wake up exhausted again because I never get to bed on time. So there's the habit. Here's the wrong belief. I am not a creature. I am infinite. My body will be fine. I am a God. As if sleep doesn't matter, right? So he's like, that's a wrong belief. Fundamentally, when you don't go to bed and take care of your body, fundamentally you believe that it doesn't matter and your body will be fine. That's, that's wrong, right? That's a habit that is speaking to a wrong belief. Second one, look at work emails on my phone before getting out of bed. That's the habit, wrong belief. I can miss a quiet time, but I can't miss a quick response. Unless I'm well-regarded in the office, I'm not worth anything. Unless I'm well-regarded in the church, I'm not worth anything. Unless I'm well-regarded in the community, I'm not worth anything. Um, If a manager asks for something late in the day on an unrealistic deadline, always say yes. If I have a social invite that comes up, always go for it. Here's the wrong belief. I will become the best version of myself by expanding my options so I can't say no. I may be tired and busy. My family may be exhausted by, by, by my unpredictability. But if I don't preserve choice, I can't be who I really am. He kind of lays out all these unbeliefs. And this is the one that he calls probably the most dangerous. And I think this plays right into our American uh, mentality. He says, even when I sense all of the above is getting out of control, 
even when the best word to describe my life is scattered or busy or chaotic, resist any, resisting any rules that would restrict technology use and work schedules. I, I resist that. Here's the wrong belief. To limit myself is to restrict my freedom. And I'm not fully human without my freedom of choice in every moment. The good life comes from choosing what you want. Does that sound pretty familiar? That's our American mentality. And oftentimes, if we're honest, that's our own heart's mentality. And so that's the wrong belief. It's guiding this, this habit that we're not paying any attention to, to be quite honest with you. He, he goes into this, and I don't know what I put on your paper. Um, you know, by the time you get to the chart, you're like, oof, I can see this. Like, I haven't really thought about it like this. I feel duped or wh- however you articulate it. But he says this, this idea, this freedom liturgy um, habit, he calls it the slavery of freedom. He says this is perhaps the most dangerous liturgy on the chart. Um, and he says this for two reasons. First, he says it doesn't actually produce freedom. Um, it actually produces more entanglement, rejecting limits on habits to keep us free to choose. Um, in fact, it ensures or guarantees that our regimen of habits will be formed by other things. So, so we're going to continue to be formed by our quote-unquote freedom and then controlled by it. Secondly, it blinds us to what the good life really is. Instead of a good life being defined as us being able to do whatever we want, the good life is having the ability to do what we were made for. So it's this idea of submission to the Lord. What were you made to do? You weren't made to have unresisted freedoms in every, every portion of your life. Um, he, he gives the example of Jesus. How was Jesus the greatest limiter of freedom? How would you guys answer that? I think, I think immediately, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah. No one comes to the Father better than me. Like, he literally the gospel itself yep. is the only key to yeah. life. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's, that's a, actually a great, really great point. The other piece of it is how did Jesus limit himself? Coming in as a man. Yeah, he resisted. He gave up his freedom of the Godhead yeah. and became man. For our own, and this is the statement he uses. He says, we, for our own sake, tried to become limitless and the world was ruined. Jesus, for our sake, became limited and the world was saved. So we were designed to be limited. He knows that about us. You know, he's, and he's the best example of that. So he moves into this idea of the rule of life. And I'm going to skip ahead um, quickly through this. It's seven after and I want to be done about 15 to 17 after. So we've got about 10 minutes tops. He, he, he kind of lays this whole groundwork and underpinning, and then he discovers what's called a rule of life. Um, everything began to change in his personal life, to be quite honest, in his work life. He was placing limits on certain things. These little habits were giving him the ability to do life and work better. People actually needed him a whole lot less, and he saw more freedom um, and fruit in, in every area of his life. Um, and so, consequentially, he talked about habits a lot, right? He, this is changing his life. It's totally reorienting, reorienting him. And one day he was telling his pastor about this whole experience. And his pastor said, oh, I see you've created a rule of life. And he was like, what are you talking about? What's a rule of life? And so a little history lesson. Um, There's a number of pretty well-known people like St. Augustine, for instance, um, and, and others were pretty big on this idea of a rule of life. The term rule of life is a term for a pattern of communal habits for formation. So St. Augustine, St. Benedict, Guys like this and some others, they were pretty obsessed with taking small patterns of life and organizing them towards the big goal of life. 
Small habits of life and organizing them towards the big goal of life. What's the big goal of life? To love God and to love neighbor. Very, very simplistically. And so um, page 14, um, I don't have time to read it all, but he said, both saw habits as the gears by which to direct life toward the purpose of love. In fact, the word rule is used because it comes from the Latin word regula, a word associated with a bar or a trellis, the woodwork on which a plant grows. And so the idea is that we're always growing and changing, and what you build on that trellis is the foundation. The habits that you build this trellis out of is the foundation of your life, basically. Um, and so he's like, ah, oh, I never heard of the rule of life, but yeah, I guess I kind of am. And so if you really stop to think about it, you realize that we humans are largely defined by the, the small routines in our life. This is what we give our time to. This is what we give our money to. This is what we give our frustrations to. This is what we give you know, our house to, whatever the case may be. Um, and so he says this, only when our habits are constructed to match our worldview do we become someone who doesn't just know about God and know about neighbor, but someone who actually loves God and loves neighbor. And, and you know, as I got to this point in the book, I thought, I don't know that I've ever, I mean, I, I know, I've thought about Christian formation and habits and, you know, doctrine, but the small, little, uneventful habits, are we really choosing them to match our worldview? Like selectively thinking through and choosing them to match our worldview. Um, another way to say it, is that it is definitely important to learn the right theological truths about God and neighbor, but it's equally necessary to put the theology into practice via a rule of life. So he, he moves into this common rule, um, this idea that we all have a common problem, and by ignoring uh, the, the way habits shape us, we have assimilated into a hidden rule of life, and that hidden rule of life is the American dream. And if we don't stay, step back and start thinking about the habits of our life, We'll just be the fish swimming towards the American dream instead of those that, you know, pursue habits that form us towards love for God. Uh, all sorts of things he believes comes out of this. The groan of the typical anxiety, depression, consumerism, injustice and vanity. All these things are so typical in our contemporary culture. And oftentimes a large part of that is because of the habits that form us. Um, he goes through and design, uh, defines what a rule is. He also reminds us, um, you know, that uh, it's going to be a little hard, but it's certainly not nearly as hard as the burden that we've all been keeping to let our habits form our life the way they are. So, you know, he says nothing worth doing um, is not going to be hard, basically. But once you kind of set up some type of layout for this, some accountability, and you start doing it, they become those natural tendencies that you do regularly um, without even thinking about them. So the hard um, kind of dissipates a bit. Um, so, so here are the eight habits. I'm going to give you the habit and then one sentence for each habit. Um, and then I'm going to finish with failure and beauty because I really think he, he um, really summarizes the, the end of this really well. So the first habit, uh, well, I, let me back up. So four habits are daily, by the way, and four habits are um, weekly. You can see that on the chart. So daily and weekly. And then each habit corresponds to two different spectrums. So the first spectrum is love for God and neighbor, and the second spectrum is embrace and resist. And so that's what that chart lays out. You can see the two columns at the bottom. You can see how it lays out the, the two spectrums. So here's the first one. Kneeling prayer at morning, midday, and bedtime. He says regular, regular carefully placed prayer is a keystone habit of build, building a trellis of habit. 
he says a whole lot more about that, but bottom line, setting up some kind of routine habit for you to have kneeling prayer three times a day is a pretty important keystone habit, he would argue. Second, one meal with others. I really like this. Um, the habit of making time for one communal meal each day forces us to reorient our schedules around food and each other like a center of gravity. Um, pretty helpful, and that obviously plays into love of neighbor. Third, one hour with the phone off. We were made for presence, but often our phones cause us to be absent. Two places at once is no place at all. Turning our phones off for an hour allows us to turn our gaze to each other. To resist absence is to love one another. Fourth, scripture before phone. Reading scripture before phone is an easy way of replacing the question of what do I need to do today with the better question of who am I and, am I, and who am I becoming? Remember, we have no identity outside of Jesus. I love that. Actually, um, I started going years ago. I plugged my phone in to charge at night. So like Michael kind of knows if I go to bed, if he texts me at 1030 and I've gone to bed, it'll be seven or so in the morning because I just I, I got tired of it being the last thing I touched and the first thing I picked up. Um, and it's it, it's really helped shape my life, just to be honest with you. It's really, really nice. Um, it's refreshing. Um, five, one hour of conversation with a friend. We were made for each other and we can't become lovers of God and of each other without intimate and vulnerable friendships. That's a pretty important statement, I think. Um, Sixth, curate media to four hours. Resisting the constant stream of addictive media and paying close attention to curating what we watch will help us seek stories that uphold beauty, that teach us to love justice and turn us to community. Seventh, fast from something for 24 hours. We constantly seek to fill our emptiness with food and other comforts. Regular fasting exposes who we really are, reminds us how broken the work around us is, and draws our eyes to Jesus, who is redeeming all things. And then eight, Sabbath. A weekly practice of the Sabbath teaches us that God sustains all the world and that we don't. The world does not hang on all that we can accomplish, and taking a Sabbath reminds us what God has accomplished for us. And so these are not life-changing uh, in and of themselves when you first look at them, but they will absolutely change your life if you find a way to put these into just a small habit change and seek some accountability around it. Um, he, what I really love is he, he really talks through um, how this could potentially be a daunting task for us. And so he offers in his resource section, um, you know, try one habit or try this for a week or put this into practice for a month. Like he makes it really tangible to where you don't feel super overwhelmed to kind of jump into it. Um, some of us are afraid to commit to anything because we don't want to fail, right? Michael and I have talked about that a number of times. So we sometimes just don't commit because <laughs> then we know it's fail, right? Um, and so he really lays out uh, a really um, tangible way to jump in. The last thing I'll, I'll throw out, because I think, um, as I said earlier, it's important um, to talk about the goal of these habits and then we'll pray and get out of here. He has a section that's called On Failure and Beauty. He says a lot there, um, which is a really nice chapter. I would highly recommend you grabbing this book immediately and, and reading through it. But here's his, here's his idea of this section. He says, the goal of these habits must be the goal of beholding the beauty of the Lord and all that he's created. That, that's the goal. The goal isn't any other thing than that. It can't be self-focused like victory over sin. Victory over sin will be an inevitable outcome, but that's not the only goal because that's self-focused. The goal has to be of beholding the beauty of the Lord and all that he's created. 
Check this out. He says, if success and victory is our only goal, when you fail, it'll crush you. And that's our life. If success and victory and being awesome and being well-regarded in our life is all that we seek, then we will be crushed, which is what we see all around our life. Um, But if beauty is our goal, when we fail, it makes the beautiful thing, which is Christ, all the more beautiful. Because we begin to see like, man, we fail in comparison to that. Um, Really, really helpful concept. So um, once again, I tried my best to cover it. No way to do justice. We could spend literally 10 weeks on this book and not exhaust it. Um, Really, really great book. Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. I think his book absolutely lays out what we need in our days. So um, any thoughts, any questions?